0: Hey, it's Dan Diamond. We're bringing you something different today, part of a series some of my colleagues have been making for the new Politico show, Global Translations. That podcast looks at big global issues that don't respect country borders, and the latest episode examines artificial intelligence, an issue that I'm fascinated with. Uh, Just don't get me started on driverless cars. Pulse check regulars probably know the huge potential AI could have in the healthcare world, and in this episode, my colleagues speak with the White House point person on AI, Lynn Parker, about her hopes for artificial intelligence in healthcare, among a lot of other big ideas. Here's the show. If you like it, you can subscribe for free wherever you're listening to Pulse Check. Just search for Global Translations. And we will be back with another episode of Pulse Check next week.
1: Artificial intelligence, facial recognition, lightning-fast networks. They're here today. They are upending companies, transforming the consumer experience, and challenging the way that lawmakers craft policy. The pace of technological change is dizzying. So how are some of the world's leading companies orienting themselves in this new world? Stay tuned for an upcoming special branded episode of Global Translations, brought to you by Citi. On October 4th, 1957,
2: something happened that shocked the world. The world learned that the Soviet Union had successfully launched the first artificial satellite. It was called Sputnik, which means traveling companion in Russian. And it was around the size of a beach ball. And people were amazed. My own grandmother was living in Poland, behind the Iron Curtain at the time, And this made such a huge impression on her that any time she looked up at the sky and saw stars that were particularly bright and sparkling, she'd tell me that those were Sputniki. Wait, Sputniki? (laughs) That's the plural of
0: Sputnik in Polish.
3: Louisa, your grandmother wasn't the only one surprised to see this satellite in the sky. The American people were shocked and much of the United States government was too.
0: So when Sputnik is orbiting the Earth and you can hear the signals with the radio, this was a surprise because there was this assumption that, well, of course, we'll be the first people to put a satellite up. But it wasn't us. It was the Russians. And uh, so that really galvanized interest and and led ultimately to the the moon missions, the Apollo missions, the creation of NASA. But the concern was, of course, that what if somebody could create some kind of super weapon? out of a technology that we hadn't even been thinking about.
3: We really had no idea that Sputnik was coming?
0: Uh, no, it was a surprise. In some, in some, from a purely technological point of view, uh, people understood that you could get a rocket into orbit. But the fact that the, the Soviets did it at that particular time was a surprise.
3: You see, the United States always thought that it would beat everyone else to space. So the launch of Sputnik caught the country off guard. And the real worry there was that if the USSR could launch Sputnik into space, then it might not be that far off from launching nuclear weapons into US airspace. A year later, Congress established the National Aeronautics and Space Administration, which you might know as NASA. And there's another agency that can credit their creation to Sputnik.
0: So DARPA is the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency founded in 1958 in response to Sputnik to create and prevent technological surprise.
2: So why are we talking about this now? Sputnik and this massive technological race between the U.S. and a rival power is old news, right? Well, not really. Today, we're witnessing the rise of a different rivalry over a new emerging technology, and that is artificial intelligence. And this time, it's not between the U.S. and Russia, but instead the U.S. and China. And when it comes to AI, these two countries are far ahead of everyone else. Today, AI is used for things like Apple's facial recognition software and your Amazon Alexa. And there's more. Police in India have used facial recognition to identify 3,000
3: missing children in just four days. A bank in Australia allowed customers to replace their ATM cards with their faces. Wait, with their faces? Their faces. And a recent study found that computers were able to detect tiny lung cancers on CT scans even better than doctors.
2: So clearly, AI will totally transform the world. And just as the anxiety around Sputnik had to do with the possibility of delivering nuclear weapons from space, a lot of the anxiety behind this battle for control of artificial intelligence has to do with the fact that some applications of AI could be pretty dark. And there are many people who want nothing to do with it.
4: San Francisco is now the first city in the U.S. to ban the use of facial recognition technology. fakes.
5: Synthesized video created by artificial intelligence can depict people saying or doing things that didn't actually happen.
4: Microsoft employees have pushed back about that. They think we created this technology to create this new level of computing, not to help people kill other people on a battlefield.
2: But it's unlikely they'll have a choice. As this ongoing competition between the U.S. and China heats up, countries will have to decide whose values will guide the development and the deployment of this incredible new technology. From Politico, I'm Louisa Savage. This is Global Translations. I'm here with Nancy Scola, Politico's senior tech reporter. Nancy, sometimes people hear the words artificial intelligence and their eyes begin to glaze over. So what is the simplest way to explain AI?
3: In the simplest sense, AI is when computers are programmed to behave and think like humans, and importantly, to learn from their behavior so they get smarter over time.
2: But, Nancy, why are we hearing so much about AI right now? I mean, it feels like every day another government comes out with an AI strategy, and I'm starting to get the impression that our robot overlords are just waiting for us around the next corner. (laughs) Uh, So one of the reasons is that we now have the
3: technology capable of powering AI, things like cloud computing, super fast Internet that we just didn't have in the past. And that sparked a lot of excitement around the world around AI, including greater investment by governments, as you mentioned, in artificial intelligence. That's true, even though AI has really been around as a field for decades and decades.
0: So AI has been a topic of intellectual curiosity and active research since the 1960s. And so it's gone through boom and bust cycles.
3: I talked about that with John Everett, who's the DARPA official we heard from earlier talking about
0: Sputnik. So there was something called the AI winter in the late 1980s where funding dried up uh, because there was no apparent progress. So at the peak in the 1980s, people were experimenting with expert systems. And an expert system, if you've ever done your taxes with TurboTax, that's an expert system. Uh, Basically, the way they're constructed is you would interview a set of experts on a topic, write down everything they know about it in the form of rules. If this, then that. The problem with rules is that there's an exception for every rule. And so as people started to use expert systems, they found they were very brittle. They wouldn't work in circumstances beyond what they had been constructed for.
3: But in the 1990s, people started to experiment with AI again. They thought, instead of creating more of these clunky expert systems like TurboTax, let's see if we can have AI work more like the human brain. This concept of mimicking elements of the human brain is known as neural networks, and it was a big deal.
0: And then suddenly, uh, graphics processing units became powerful enough to be able to create really deep neural networks. Uh, But then suddenly, deep learning becomes possible, and the power of this Uh, was, was quite a surprise. And that's led to this current boom of AI that we're in now, which is really a boom in pattern recognition.
2: Well, he didn't mention our robot overlords, but what about robot servants? It turns out it's really hard to teach robots common sense.
0: Science fiction in this area tends to create sort of a halo around the actual technology. So it's easy to think that, oh, well, Siri, I can talk to Siri, and so therefore... Surely it'll only be a little while before there's a robot, like in the movie Ex Machina or something.
6: I want to talk to you about the greatest scientific event in the
0: history of man. Are you building an AI? But now let's think about how much common sense is needed even for doing simple things in a home. For example, if I ask the butler to pick up the living room, I don't want it to literally pick up the living room. There's, there's a certain natural language understanding that has to go into that to understand, that, well, what I'd like it to do is tidy things up. And so the couch cushions, which are on the floor, because my son pulled them off, they need to go back on the couch. Um, then the, uh, there are some empty Coke cans. Those should go in the recycling. Uh, but then there's an iPhone, it's around the same size Coke can. That should not go in the recycling. So this is sort of an open-ended problem.
3: I'm just curious. This sort of intelligent butler—is that a solvable problem? This is really just my own curiosity. But is it I'm actually I'm a solvable problem with enough time and computers and data? And-
0: um, I, I would never sell human ingenuity short, <laughs> but I don't see an immediate path to it. I think it is—it's okay. a, a grand challenge uh, for AI, and um, you know, I think that it's. Uh, maybe 20 years at least in the future.
2: So Nancy, it sounds like the robot butler who's going to make me breakfast in bed is probably a long way off. But is there anything that is not a long way off?
3: Yeah. So relying on AI to improve your quality of life might be a little ways off.
7: What's not so far off in the future is AI actually helping to save lives. And so I think there's a possibility for um, really revolutionizing how we do healthcare. care. I talked about that with Lynn Parker, who runs the White House's AI strategy. Well, if you look at um, the application of AI in healthcare, I think there's an enormous potential there for us to be able to uh, not only better diagnose diseases, but also come up with personalized treatment strategies. It's certainly not taking the practitioner, the the doctor, or the medical um, care provider out of the loop, but it's about providing them a tool that helps them to do the job much better. It provides them extra knowledge, um, and it provides it in more real time so that they can provide that extra uh, healthcare care um, advantage so that people can have improved quality of life.
3: How many years will it be before I go visit my doctor and they have this sort of, they're supercharged with their uh, AI capabilities? How many years off is
7: that? Well, I think it's probably um, at least five years off. Um, I think there are certainly ways that AI will be helping. Um, For instance, right now in in understanding images uh, to see if there's a tumor or to see if there's a broken bone, We do have that ability now, and I think it will be scaling uh, a little bit more deeply. But um, AI right now doesn't have the ability to reason about causes. But I think um, any kind of capability that's more based on pattern recognition, like finding a tumor in an image, is much um, even used today and will become uh, more used in, in the near term.
2: So, as artificial intelligence becomes more and more embedded in our healthcare system, along with our policing system and criminal justice system and our financial system, and even in decisions about who gets served which job wanted ad, there's now a growing anxiety that, ironically, it could introduce and even entrench human bias into all of those places. So that's
3: a real concern. There was some research recently that found that hiring algorithms were privileging people named Jared who played lacrosse in high school. And that fits into this broader worry that the technologies, AI technologies, are biased against people of color, biased against women. Part of that's a reflection, people say, of the people who are building these technologies. There was a report out of NYU earlier this year that found that women comprise only 15% of AI researchers at Facebook and just 10% at Google. So these concerns about racial and gender bias came up in several of the interviews I did, including with Alyssa Strom. She's the executive director of the Pan-Canadian Artificial Intelligence Strategy at CIFAR.
8: So CIFAR is a global research organization. We bring together the world's leading researchers to address important challenges facing society. You know, one of the things that keeps me up at night really is uh, the lack of diversity in AI. So when we look at, um, you know, the countries around the world that are really leading the advancement of the science of machine learning, uh, you know, there are five countries in the world that are really leading this work. Canada is one of them. She told me about a report that was released
3: in Canada earlier this year about the state of the AI talent pool. What the report had to say was
8: pretty grim. A report came out this spring by, by our colleagues at a startup company here in Canada called Element AI. And they released their global AI talent report. And they found that uh, internationally, only 18% of uh, AI researchers are women. And so for me, that's, that, that's a big problem. And uh, so, as I said, we do a lot of work at CIFAR to try to increase the level of inclusion. Why is that lack of diversity and inclusion and representation a problem? this technology as it continues to be developed and adopted and applied, you know, is gonna touch all of our lives in in various different ways in, you know, in our transportation, in how we apply for jobs, in how we get healthcare. And um, one of the real challenges with AI and bias is that if the data sets themselves are not fully inclusive, then the results can become biased.
2: Taking all of our human biases out of AI won't be that simple, and it could be made even more challenging by the particular way the U.S. is approaching the development of this technology. So coming up, is the U.S. approach to AI completely backwards?
1: More in a minute. Nearly 90% of executives surveyed by MIT and Deloitte say digital disruption is coming for their companies. So what's it like running a 200-year-old financial services firm while confronting and embracing today's rapid shifts in technology? One thing is certain, you can't bank on yesterday's success.
6: We are in, in an extinction phase. There, there's no doubt about it, when technologies change and you know, when human behavior changes to the extent that is occurring right now in 2019, if you can't meet those expectations, then you, know, you become obsolete.
1: The pace of change is only speeding up. 90% of the world's data has been created in the last two years. There are now more mobile phone connections than people. And consumers have double the interactions with brands on mobile devices than anywhere else, according to Google. Stephen Bird, the CEO of Citi's Global Consumer Bank, sees those trends and he's formed a singular mission, make the bank forward compatible.
6: What is it that makes a company forward compatible? You know, you have to create a new culture. We have to be able to shine a light on the, the potential to either grow in a successful way or go extinct Uh, we have to bring in uh, new talent people who can come in and challenge us challenge our model and that's what i'm working on
1: i'm carol zimmer stay tuned for our second branded installment of global translations brought to you by our sponsor city We'll be looking at how consumer behavior, artificial intelligence, and faster networks are transforming companies and policy in this fiercely competitive world. We'll hear from Stephen Bird, the CEO of Citi's Global Consumer Bank, and Thomas Curion, the CEO of Google Cloud. Look out for that episode on August 1st, wherever you listen to this podcast.
2: So, Nancy, with everything at stake in artificial intelligence, who's in charge of this new technology? So
3: it depends on what country we're talking about. There's a huge debate in the field about which model works best. What
2: mix of government funding, free market, academia is actually going to propel AI ahead? So just like in any other field of technology, industry is saying they want the freedom to innovate and and government should stay out of the way, right? Really, the approach in the United States has been this free market approach. Let industry run free. And that's not the approach that's being taken everywhere.
3: No, certainly not. Some countries have had a little bit of a heavier hand of trying to cultivate an AI workforce in Canada, for example. Other countries like China have stepped in and said, this is really how AI is going to play out within our borders.
2: And in Europe, too, there's a lot of concern about the need for more regulation around everything from data privacy to algorithms and whether or not they discriminate.
3: Absolutely. In Europe, they're having a robust conversation of not only about the technical aspects of AI, but the social and ethical implications of these technologies.
4: China is spending around 9% of its entire government budget on R&D. And the United States' spend is less than 3%. And that amount of money is shrinking.
3: I spoke about some of that with Amy Webb. She's a futurist and a professor at the Stern School of Business at NYU, as well as the author of the book, The Big Nine, How the Tech Titans and Their Thinking Machines Could Warp Humanity.
4: If we're not going to see meaningful spending outside of military applications on a fundamental technology like AI for things like basic research, then we have no choice but to rely on the private sector. And the problem with relying on the private sector and specifically companies like Google, Amazon, Facebook, Apple, IBM, and Microsoft—is that these are publicly traded companies? You know, they they have to turn a profit. So we've really put ourselves in in kind of a preventable and all you know and, and also dangerous situation in that they're motivated. The companies are motivated by profit, so the decisions they're making are different than the ones that. The... That's right, and. You know, I know people who work at these companies. And with the exception of Facebook, I don't think any of these companies are intentionally choosing to put us in harm's way. I just don't. You know, that being said, if you have investors, and if you have, you know, lots of employees and market demands, and you have ideas for what the future is going to look like, um, that then you have to earn money somehow, uh, in order to facilitate all of this. The problem with that we face, I think, in the United States, that's so different from China, is that there's an antagonistic relationship between the Valley and their neighbors to the north up in Bellevue and Seattle. There's an antagonistic relationship between them and Washington, D.C. There's been zero attempt, for real, to build from the ground up meaningful relationships. So, you know, on the best of days, it's transactional. Most of the time, it's antagonistic. And we've missed an opportunity to encourage and incentivize real collaboration. Instead, everybody, you know, they ignore each other. So, Nancy, is it fair to say that the U.S. government
2: is basically sitting on its hands when it comes to AI? Not if you ask the White House. Earlier this year, President Trump issued an
3: executive order on AI. And the White House argues they're doing a ton, that artificial intelligence is front and center for this administration. Here's Lynn Parker again. She's the assistant director for artificial intelligence at the White House we heard from earlier.
7: I think um, there's uh, certainly a number of regulatory concerns that were addressed, such as um, how we can better use AI-enabled tools in healthcare, for instance. So the FDA um, looked at, at their uh, process of approving the marketing of AI tools for healthcare, care, and um, then ended up with um, approving the first AI-enabled tool that can be used for diagnosing uh, diabetic retinopathy, for instance. There are also some regulatory approaches that were addressed as it relates to DOT's work and integrating driverless vehicles into our transportation system, and FAA looking at pilot programs to allow drones to um, integrate into our national airspace. And all of that happened relatively early in the administration. So there are a number of these um, areas, in particular focusing on the regulatory barriers to the use of AI and applications that were happening in the early days.
3: Do you worry at all that while the U.S. is taking this considered methodical approach to developing rules for the use of AI that countries like China are using it in more sort of surveillance uh, ways?
7: Well, of course, um, we, uh, the executive order is very clear. We don't want to um, develop AI at the expense of our values. And so we always want to use AI in a way that's consistent with uh, civil liberties and privacy and, and American values. So clearly, we don't um, want to become a surveillance state like China. On the other hand, the opposite extreme is to overregulate to the point where we can't use it at all. And so I think the, the policy challenge is to make sure we get it right, to make sure we find that right. Right balance, um, so that we are using AI in ways that we all agree are appropriate use cases, and at the same time, um, we are um, not crossing that line to uh, using it in ways that that people find uncomfortable and invasions of their their privacy.
4: Well, I sat next to Lynn a couple of weeks ago, and I told her a lot of the same things that I'm telling you.
7: That's Amy Webb. Our R and D
4: spend is nowhere close to what it should be. Nowhere close. So until we drastically increase the budget for R and D in general, and, and basic research in science and technology, and specifically in AI, there's you know we're not going to get very far. We are grossly outpaced by some of the education initiatives elsewhere. So our science and technology education has to improve in a meaningful way. Otherwise, again, you know, we continue to be far behind. This administration has gotten itself into a cycle of extreme short-termism and continually failing to address long-term risk. Or do we even model out the downstream negative implications uh, of... What's being said, what's being done, what's not being done. You know, I mean, I could go on and on. There are the wrong people in place to, to address what is a problem of critical importance. And that's not even the end of Amy Webb's
3: critique. Not only is the problem in the R&D approach, but also in the way we're letting AI into our lives
4: without the right plan or framework for it. It's in a way being developed without the future of humanity as a core focal point.
3: And what, what is
4: the worry there?
3: What what happens when we develop AI without keeping humanity at the forefront?
4: I mean, I know that's a bold proclamation. So there are everyday irritations that we're already starting to face. So, um, you know, one easy, easy one is most people who have gone through an airport in the past decade or so have either gone through a metal detector or through that other larger machine that's next to the metal detector. And that large machine is comparing your data to a to a baseline um, that that is part of a database. And if there's any anomalies between you and what the system expects to see, then you're pulled aside. Well, an interesting piece of that AI system is that nobody trained it on women who wear underwire bras. And because nobody trained the system to recognize that in advance, you are far more likely to get pulled aside than everybody else. Now, that's not some kind of catastrophic, that's not a catastrophic or existential threat, but it's an everyday irritation. What's the cumulative effect on
3: society if we have all these AI systems making, you know, a thousand decisions for us over the course of the day?
4: Right. So the way that I like to think about this is that we are enabling and self-inflicting lots of different paper cuts, if your entire body from head to toe is covered in paper cuts, if you have millions of paper cuts, tiny paper cuts all over your body, technically you are still alive. And technically you can still work and you can still get married. You know, you are still a human. The problem with AI is that everybody is looking for some enormous event horizon or some singularity which would you know, make us believe that AI is somehow still far off in the distance. It's not. We live with AI and we have been living with AI every day for many, many years. Um, you're hearing about it now because there's finally enough capital flowing in, there's enough compute power, and we have some serious threats and risks coming from unusual places that AI has become part of our public dialogue. So it sounds like, in a lot of ways,
2: AI is already here. And it's already making a lot of decisions on our behalf. And the issue is, what assumptions and biases is it bringing to those decisions? But even if democracies could solve some of these problems, what happens when this technology is developed by an authoritarian country?
6: We've got to recognize that the China challenge really is a serious one.
2: That's 2020 Democratic presidential candidate Pete Buttigieg at one of the Democratic debates.
6: And if you look at what China is doing, they're using technology for the perfection of dictatorship.
2: That came up in my conversation with Elsa Kenya. She's a Harvard PhD student and a senior fellow at the Center for New American Security and a specialist in Chinese military innovation. Elsa was one of the first people to translate the Chinese government's artificial intelligence strategy from Mandarin into English when it came out in 2017
5: the chinese government uh, sees the application of artificial intelligence as an ideal instrument to enhance social control and the coercive capacity of the state the proliferation of ai enabled cameras with facial recognition is certainly adds a level of precision to to those capabilities particularly if you look at what is happening today in xinjiang the situation is Deeply, deeply troubling and heartbreaking because here you have this intersection of mass atrocity with emerging technologies that are essentially turning a region of China into an open air prison by many accounts.
2: Right. We've heard a lot of reports lately about the way these technologies are being used to repress and control the Muslim Uyghur minority in China.
5: Over a million Uyghurs are detained or interred in what are often characterized as concentration camps where various techniques of biometrics are being actively applied, including through, for instance, forcible collection of biometric information. Folks, uh, by some accounts, are afraid to talk in Xinjiang today because of advanced capabilities in voice recognition or natural language processing, essentially China's equivalent of Siri gone bad in a sense, where the ability to recognize someone's voice and to interpret that content can be applied to this surveillance in enabling very deeply rooted control and really terrorizing population, though these activities are extending throughout China today and there is a risk of their export around the world.
2: So it's not just China that's trying to take a concerted, focused government approach to AI. We're seeing countries like Canada, the United Kingdom, Australia, and others that are putting significant government investments into the development of AI. So you're seeing a lot of different efforts. One of the biggest is at the OECD, where a lot of Countries have come together and agreed to a set of principles, and those countries include the United States, about how AI um, should be governed. Now, of course, this is not a binding agreement. It's a a set of of principles and and standards. And also at the G7, Canada and France have launched an effort for industrialized countries to work together on, on a framework for AI that they can all agree to. So how will we govern artificial intelligence? Is there a role here for national governments, or do we need multilateral institutions to step in? With the free market approach of the United States on one side, the authoritarian approach of China on another side, and the more interventionist government perspective in Europe, I put this question to Dame Wendy Hall. She's a distinguished computer scientist, a professor at the University of Southampton, and she's the co-author of the United Kingdom's AI strategy. So what is the UK's vision for how these technologies ought to be governed? Is there a role here for national governments? Is there a role for multilateral institutions? Where are we headed with
9: all this? In some ways, I see it developing like the, our financial regulations have developed, except they've got, we've got to do it in a shorter space of time rather than decades or centuries. Um, there's all sorts of things you can do to, to force companies to um, check, self-regulate by, by having a lightweight regulation from the government that says every so year or so many years you have to you have to produce a report on what you've done how you've checked the results you know what, what, how you've audited your AI and your data and I think we will develop AI audits uh, to make sure it's safe like we've seen with the, um, the pressure on Boeing and the 737 max you know, what are your processes why did this why was this decision made how can you be sure it won't be made in the, uh, a bad decision won't be made like in the future. And then there needs to be some international agreements as well. Where do you see the biggest divisions
2: between, say, the UK, the EU, the United States and and China emerging as it comes
9: to governance. We see three new internets emerging, a market force-led one, as you see in the States, with the big Silicon Valley companies on the West Coast lobbying uh, Washington on the East Coast for the laws that will make their shareholders happy, which is what companies should do. Um, It's a natural emergence. Europe has taken a data protection approach. We have GDPR, uh, General Data Protection Regulation, um, which is quite as a very heavy regulation that um is laudable but potentially it means you're doing ai with both hands tied behind your back because of the hoops you have to jump through uh, which will mean that um and already we're seeing um uh, a fragmenting between the europe and us internet and then of course in china you've got um uh, a completely different rule where basically anyone who does anything on the internet the government has access to that data who decides whether a piece of content on the internet is, is should be brought, you know taken down or not i mean who makes that decision is that the company is it the is it the government you know where do you draw these lines it's really hard
2: That's where we're going on next week's episode of Global Translations. Who will draw those lines? Thanks for listening to the show. If you liked it, subscribe for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Thanks to my colleague, Nancy Scola. Our producer is Patricia Jacob. Dave Shaw is the executive producer of Politico Audio. I'm Louisa Savage. Global Translations is presented by Citi, a leading global bank. Listen for a branded episode from Citi about some of these same themes coming Thursday, August 1st. Thanks, and see you next week.